This week, after endlessly teasing the so-called deal of the century, a plan to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, President Trump finally announced his plan last Tuesday. But what's actually in it? Does anyone think it can work? Basically, should you be spending any time at all taking this peace plan seriously? Let's dive in. I'm Lev Gringaus, and welcome to The Jews Are Tired, your podcast about Jewish news. So before we jump into the peace plan itself, we have to note the context around its release last Tuesday with President Trump and Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu standing side by side at the White House. Trump has been impeached by the House of Representatives, and his Senate impeachment trial is still ongoing, though likely to end on Wednesday. And Netanyahu has been indicted in three corruption cases, making him the first sitting Israeli prime minister to be dealing with charges like breach of trust and bribery. Now, in a month, Israel goes to its third round of national elections in under a year, and in November, the United States will have presidential elections. So naturally, any moves right now by Trump and Netanyahu are questionable at best. Still, here's a passage from the beginning of the peace plan. Quote, It is essential that this vision be assessed holistically. This vision presents a package of compromises that both sides should consider in order to move forward and pursue a better future that will benefit both of them and others in the region. End quote. So, okay. I think that's fair. Let's look at this plan on its own terms and see what's going on. But first, we do have to understand some of the basics of Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiations. Here are the core issues of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, or really the core issues of negotiating a Palestinian state into existence. Number one, the status of Jerusalem. Israel says that all of the city of Jerusalem will remain united under Israeli control as its capital, and Palestinian leadership has maintained that they will only accept East Jerusalem, meaning the old city of Jerusalem and the surrounding Arab neighborhoods, as the capital of a future Palestinian state. So, the question is, to split Jerusalem or not? Number two, what amount of territory a future state of Palestine actually gets? At the moment, there are something like half a million Israelis living in settlements in the West Bank, and the West Bank is a jumble of settlements, Palestinian towns and cities, and army bases. In the 1990s, the last time any serious negotiating over Israeli-Palestinian peace happened, the working assumption was that something like 93% of the West Bank would become a future state of Palestine. For that to happen now, a lot of settlements would have to get torn down. So what do you do with all of those people? Palestinians, of course, want as much territory as they can get. Number three, the Palestinian right of return. Roughly 750,000 Palestinians fled their homes in the time of the 1948 war between five Arab countries and a newly declared state of Israel. And their descendants want to go back to those homes, which are now in mainland Israel. The problem here is complicated by a mix of reality and ideals. Israel was meant to be a Jewish and democratic state, but in order to be democratic and Jewish, there has to be a significant majority of Jews living and voting in Israel. If the millions of descendants of those 750,000 Palestinians who fled in 1948 want to come back to their homes in Israel, then Jews stop being the majority 
and through Palestinian votes, Israel would become a binational state, Jewish and Palestinian, which is basically a one-state solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and the end of Israel as the only Jewish state in the world. Number four, Israel having at minimum functional control of the Jordan River Valley, a valley that marks the border with the country Jordan by means of the River Jordan. This ties into general Israeli concerns about security and potential threats from Iran or Iranian proxy terrorist groups invading or operating in the West Bank. This is also related to the Israeli demand that a future state of Palestine be demilitarized, similar to Japan after World War II. And, number five, this is a more recent development, but the idea is that a Palestinian state was always meant to be in the West Bank and in Gaza, but right now, the Palestinian Authority controls the West Bank, and Hamas, a terrorist organization, controls Gaza, and the PA and Hamas do not get along. So no one wants to declare a Palestinian state only in the West Bank, because, well, what about Gaza? Does Hamas get their own state? So, this is a pretty big roadblock. Now, having gone through that, here is how Trump's peace plan addresses these issues. Jerusalem stays united under Israeli control, and Palestinians can make their capital at the far, far edge of eastern Jerusalem in the Arab neighborhoods that are further into the West Bank. A future state of Palestine would get roughly 70% of the West Bank, with no Israeli settlements moved or evacuated, and the land that the settlements are on annexed by Israel. To give you an idea of what this actually looks like, think of drawing the outline of your outstretched hand on a piece of paper. That wavy back and forth from your palm to the end of your fingers and back to your palm well, imagine that as a feature of what would be a complex border between Israel and this future Palestinian state. Instead of Palestine being a cohesive chunk of land with clear borders, it would really be a bunch of intertwining landlocked islands and fingers of territory of Palestinian sovereignty. 97% of Israelis in the West Bank would become a part of Israel, and 97% of Palestinians in the West Bank would be together in the state of Palestine. No Palestinians are allowed to return to Israel. There is no Palestinian right of return, and only several thousand are even allowed to return to the West Bank territory that is supposed to become a Palestinian state. A fund will be apparently established to pay reparations to the refugees, and Palestinian refugees in countries like Lebanon, Syria, and the United Arab Emirates will be given full citizenship, quote, subject to those countries' consent, end quote. It should be noted that those countries have never consented to absorb Palestinian refugees before. Israel gets security control of the Jordan River Valley, which has translated into an effort by Netanyahu to annex the Jordan River Valley. We'll get back into this in a moment. Oh, and a cornerstone, if you will, of this plan is that nothing is actually binding or viable unless Hamas gives up Gaza and stops being a terrorist organization. The Palestinian Authority gives up on suing Israel in the International Criminal Court and stops paying the families of terrorists, and a prisoner exchange is done between Israel and Hamas. Israel is also supposed to stop any settlement expansion for the next four years, which is the window laid out by the Trump peace plan for the Palestinian leadership to agree to negotiate on the basis of the plan. 
Now, before we move on to the real-life responses and after-effects of this plan being announced, and what this plan says about the current situation between Israelis and Palestinians, if we're going to honestly, holistically look at this plan, then we have to understand why it's dead on arrival. First of all, the plan sets as a prerequisite for negotiations for a Palestinian state that Hamas will be disarmed and Gaza will demilitarize. This is not going to happen. Hamas will not disarm. And you know what? If you pay attention, Israeli officials actually know that. There hasn't been a full-scale war in Gaza since 2014, even though the amount of rocket fire coming from Gaza in recent years has been at times much more than what it was in 2014. Israel is in the process of negotiating for some level of some sort of peace with Hamas right now through Egypt. Regime change in Gaza is a pipe dream. To nail that in, here's an excerpt of what Mohammed Shahada, a writer and activist from Gaza, wrote in an op-ed for the Israeli newspaper Haaretz. Quote, Disarming Hamas is not a panacea. Its collection of primitive arms is the only enforcement mechanism for ceasefires with Israel as a way to intimidate other armed groups in Gaza to keep the peace. Should Hamas agree to disarm before Palestinian statehood, yes, we're in fantasy territory already, the ensuing chaos would be unstoppable. Not only would other armed groups in Gaza try to take Hamas's place, but the movement's own members would decamp to the opposition. Disarming Hamas by force is also a catch-22. Who will do the disarming? End quote. Second of all, Israel is all about maintaining its own security. And look, for as good as it sounds that neither Israelis nor Palestinians in the West Bank will have to move and borders will just get drawn around them in this peace plan, like I said, the result is a mess. What you get is a convoluted border that is hard to see, understand, and in terms of security, defend. For anyone who's been to Israel or the West Bank specifically, you know that Israel is tiny and the West Bank is even smaller. Yes, this plan technically leaves room for Israelis and Palestinians to negotiate clearer borders, but as a basis of negotiations, the current map is a no-go. There is also a proposed land swap in southern Israel, with Gaza basically getting an extension into Israel, which, even with Gaza demilitarized, no Israeli official would agree to. This ties into the third reason this plan is dead on arrival. The right-wing settler movement is not having it. Though 97% of them would become part of Israel, the way the map is drawn, there are about 15 settlements that would be surrounded by Palestinian territory, and that's a no-go for them. The settler movement has been incredibly successful in shaping facts on the ground with quick expansion, and they're already saying they will speed up settlement expansion to take more land and avoid being surrounded by a future Palestinian state. Israel is supposed to stop all settlement growth for the next four years, but the reality is that Israel has never gotten a grip on settlements. And finally, the most important reason why this plan is dead on arrival. You make peace plans with your enemies, not your friends. You have to negotiate with your enemies, not your friends. And the Palestinian leadership hasn't been part of negotiating Trump's peace plan. Israelis and Americans got together, managed by Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, who, it should be noted, has zero foreign policy experience whatsoever, and put together this plan. Love it or hate it, that's not how you do it, folks. 
Here's how Dr. Sarah Hirschhorn, an assistant professor of Israel studies at Northwestern University and author of City on a Hilltop, American Jews and the Israeli Settlement Movement, put it on Twitter. Quote, This isn't an Israeli-Palestinian peace plan. It's a U.S.-Israel conflict management unilateral annexation plan. At moment, there is zero buy-in from Palestinians who are unifying around the anti-plan poll or regional partners. Which brings us to the world's reactions to the plan since last week Tuesday when it was released. Mahmoud Abbas, the president of the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, said, quote, We say a thousand no's to this deal, end quote. Hamas, of course, also rejected the plan. Arab countries were sort of lukewarm. Here's an excerpt from the Saudi Arabian statement on Trump's peace plan. Quote, the kingdom appreciates the efforts of President Trump's administration to develop a comprehensive peace plan between the Palestinian and the Israeli sides and encourages the start of direct peace negotiations between the Palestinian and Israeli sides under the auspices of the United States. End quote. So not exactly a rousing endorsement of the plan, and similar statements were released by several Arab countries, though this past Saturday, the Arab League, an organization of 22 Arab countries throughout the Middle East and North Africa, rejected Trump's peace plan. But this all was mostly a show because reports are now coming out that Sudan, for example, which voted against the peace plan at the Arab League, is trying to open up diplomatic relations with Israel because they see Israel as the way to get to Trump and the way to get to American support. Other countries are also going through some similar algebra. But most experts agree that whether Arab countries say yes or no to the peace deal doesn't actually matter because they don't care about the Palestinians anymore or even Israel's existence. The real regional issue is Iran, and Israel is an ally against Iran. Here's what retired CIA officer Mark Polymeropoulos tweeted. Quote, some in the U.S. are pointing gleefully to Gulf Arab pseudo-ish support for the peace plan. It's clear that the Gulf continues to grovel to Trump because of real, legit fear of Iran, so this is their quid pro quo. End quote. And in response to the plan, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tried to start a process of annexing the Jordan River Valley, which apparently had gotten the thumbs up from Trump. But then Netanyahu backtracked after Jared Kushner said that no, the U.S. would not approve any Israeli annexations right now. This is another reason that the Israeli right wing and the settler movement is increasingly angry and unhappy with the peace plan, because they wanted annexation to happen already. Netanyahu has been promising annexation of the West Bank, or really parts of the West Bank, for years now, but usually as part of his re-election efforts. And to nobody's surprise, Netanyahu promised this week that after Israeli elections in March, he would make annexation happen. No one believes the election gimmicks anymore. And from the Israeli security and military establishment, you had such quotes like what Amos Yadlin, a former Israeli general and executive director of Tel Aviv University's Institute for National Security Studies, said, quote, the peace program that was announced by Donald Trump yesterday has the potential to change the situation in the Middle East. It could be significant, but it could also not be significant. End quote. Take that as you will. But look, whether or not the peace plan will be implemented or negotiations will start based on it, we have to recognize that it is a product of reality. We have to understand the context here. 
Israel functionally controls the West Bank and settlements continue to expand. There are roughly half a million settlers all throughout the West Bank. It's all well and good that we talk about a two-state solution, but in a very real way, Israel has won the conflict. The facts on the ground are that Israel has won the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And there is a case to be made that in the real world, peace negotiations and peace deals don't happen because of international law or human rights or the United Nations, but because there's a winner and a loser, and the loser says they've had enough or the winner just imposes their reality. In this way, there is something really honest about Trump's peace plan in that it recognizes reality. Why should Israel give up territory or settlements? Why should it give up anything? How will that bring peace? Well, the argument against just accepting reality is actually best made by one of the guys who pretty much started and encouraged the settlement movement. Ariel Sharon, who was a long-time right-wing hawk and military figure, who was Israel's prime minister during the Second Intifada from 2001 until 2006. He later died of a stroke. But here's what Sharon had to say in 2003 to an Israeli cabinet meeting. Quote, You cannot like the word, but what is happening is an occupation. To hold three and a half million Palestinians under occupation. I believe that is a terrible thing for Israel and for the Palestinians. It can't continue endlessly. End quote. Incidentally, if you pay attention, most of the Israeli military and intelligence establishment, the officials of the IDF, the Mossad, the Shin Bet, they also agree with Sharon. An article linked in the podcast notes gives somewhat of an overview of that. Sharon recognized that this situation is unsustainable and that eventually there will have to be a Palestinian state where Israel can back off and stop controlling the West Bank if there ever is really going to be peace but not a barely viable Palestinian state in a small amount of land in the West Bank because Israeli settlers have swallowed so much territory. No, a viable Palestinian state whose borders are clear and make sense in most of the West Bank. But in order to make that happen, settlements would have to be torn down and evacuated, and in the Israeli psyche, that's not going to happen anytime soon. Because when Ariel Sharon withdrew settlements from Gaza in 2005, well, Hamas, a terrorist organization, took control of Gaza. So right now, it's a lose-lose, the situation. It really is. The status quo continues. Millions of Palestinians in the West Bank are either directly or functionally under Israeli control. And Trump's peace plan does nothing to change it, except help us recognize that on the ground, there isn't that much hope for a real two-state solution anymore, or really any solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. But when it comes to the status quo, we also have to recognize that Palestinian leadership is absolutely at fault for allowing this situation to go on for as long as it has and to become entrenched the way it has. This may sound like some right-wing talking points, but the truth is that Palestinian leadership has rejected just about every peace plan and peace negotiation. And when peace negotiations from the 1990s broke down, Palestinian leadership encouraged a bloody uprising in the early 2000s that targeted Israeli civilians with terrorism. And look, there's a crucial aspect to understand about the Palestinian leadership, and in fact, this is something that's true of many players in the Middle East overall. They are absolutist. There are things they want. 
a right of return for Palestinians to Israel, a capital in East Jerusalem, and they will not compromise. They can't. So when the Trump administration applies what it calls maximum pressure to the Palestinian Authority by cutting off funding, excluding the Palestinian Authority from creating this peace deal, the Americans think that if they push hard enough, Palestinians will do what they want. They are wrong. This is ideological and this is deep. This is why, though America cut off funding to the Palestinian Authority because the PA gives money to the families of terrorists, and the PA is now functionally broke, they are still giving money to families of terrorists. Trump and Jared Kushner have said that this peace deal is a take-it-or-leave-it offer. Palestinian leadership, as it stands, will only leave it. And I think this is an important point to hammer home. Whether we like it or not, there is a Palestinian perspective to this, and it's not that they are the ones purposefully trashing peace deals. It's that they have demands that are essential, and there are no way you're going to walk around those demands or give half of those demands and call it a day and say, here's a peace deal, take it or leave it. Here's an excerpt from a Vox opinion piece by Hannah Alshech, a PhD student in history and Middle Eastern studies at Harvard University. Al-Sheikh's family is from a Palestinian town that was forcibly evacuated by the Israeli Defense Forces after the Six-Day War of 1967, when Israel first captured the West Bank and Gaza. Quote, As a Palestinian-American from a family that was displaced by the Israeli military in 1967, I am not mourning the death of the two-state solution or the rhetorical abandonment of the Oslo Accords that have long served as the framework for peace negotiations. Those solutions never addressed the core issues of the Palestinian freedom struggle, actualizing the right of Palestinian refugees to return, ending Palestinian statelessness, and affirming the Palestinians' right to determine their collective future. The attitude behind Trump's plan assumes that displaced Palestinians, living with none of the privileges I had, will abandon their rightful demands in exchange for the crumbs this deal will throw at them. I refuse to give up on my refugee family's dream of returning to their emptied village. I reject the oppression of my people. There have been moments in which my family has felt unwelcome here, meaning in the United States, but we are forbidden by the state of Israel from returning to our village, emptied of its residents in 1967, and still empty today. Trump lectured Palestinians to meet the challenges of a peaceful coexistence in his speech Tuesday. I ask, why am I still barred from returning to my family's empty village? Why are Palestinians like my family prevented from returning to land they lived on peacefully for generations? End quote. Here's then the thesis of this episode of The Jews Are Tired. This peace plan changes nothing. It may sound nice, it may give us a much-needed reality check, but the truth is that we're further away from a two-state solution, or really any solution, than ever. And if anything, by mobilizing the Israeli settlement movement, Trump's peace plan may make the situation even more entrenched. If I end up being wrong, then I will happily tell my grandkids that Trump really did bring peace to Israelis and Palestinians, but I wouldn't put my money on it. If there's ever going to be peace, Israelis and Palestinians have to sit down and figure this out and negotiate together. And, well, what are the ways to make that happen? That's a podcast episode for another time. This has been this week's The Jews Are Tired podcast. I'm Lev Gringaus. Don't forget to subscribe and share. And hopefully next week, the Jews will get some rest. 
The Jews Are Tired is a product of Jewfolk Inc. For more information, go to tcjewfolk.com or email the show at podcast at tcjewfolk.com.